Welcome back to the Bod Chance Podcast with your host, Jado Negro. This is episode 31, and on this episode, we are talking to Dr. D. Dr. D is a clinician and school psychologist who will introduce you to not only what she does, but also some things that you may be able to do for yourself. One thing I promise you above all else is if you listen to this episode from beginning to end, you will in fact learn something. Whether what you learn is something that can be applied to your daily life or that something is new information about a role you never knew existed, you will absolutely walk away a bit more informed than you did before you listened. As always, I'm certain you will enjoy and I'm glad you're here listening, just like I'm glad when you share, rate and subscribe to the show. Christmas is coming up. It's time to give gifts. So. Pass this one around to the people in the office, then ask each and every one of them to give this show a five star rating in the spirit of giving gifts. So hold tight. Dr. D is about to learn you a few new things from here on out. I am thinking too hard. Okay, let's start over. Start over again. So what is your name? I'm Dr. D. Dr. D. What do you do? I am a school psychologist. And where did Dr. D go to school so that she could become a school psychologist? Okay. I went to a few schools. I received my bachelor's in psychology at UCLA. And then I went to Michigan State where I received my master's and my doctorate. And then I went to Johns Hopkins and I finished my postdoc. Is a postdoc? Yes. Does that impact how you be doctoring? Kind of. Okay. Um, I, I didn't know Typically that. you, you go into a postdoc for a couple of reasons. You might go because you want additional teaching experience. You might go to get additional clinical experience, which is what I did. So my postdoc was purely clinical. So all I did was counseling children and their families. And I was able to acquire a certain number of hours uh, that I can use towards my licensure, which I don't quite have yet because I've yet to take the test, which costs a good thousand or so dollars to take. So I am practicing, but I'm practicing in a school setting. If I want to practice outside of a school setting, I need to go ahead and take that test. It's called the EPPP. So as a practicing counselor? After you, I'm not a practicing counselor. I'm a practicing school psychologist. As a... Our roles are not the same, even though... All right, I don't know that. What's, what's the difference between a counselor okay. and a psychologist? So when you think about a school counselor, a school counselor does a number of things. Um, they do a lot that has to do with scheduling, um, college and career readiness, planning, things of that sort. They do some counseling, uh, but they tend to be, I always think of them as the front lines when it comes to uh, student support. Most students and families know of the counselor, so if something's going on, they're more likely to go to them. If there's an issue with their grades, if there's issues with the teacher, 
uh, if there's some type of issue with friends, family, things like that, they tend to go to the counselor first. A school psychologist, though, has a slightly, well, actually a quite different role uh, in the school. So one of the big things that the school psychologist does is uh, assessments in order to identify whether or not a student has a disability of some sort. And there are a number of disabilities that a student might have that might be impacting them in the school setting. Uh, but many of the things that people think of are learning disabilities, uh, autism, ADHD, uh, intellectual disability. Uh, so the school psychologist is really the one person that works in the school building who can do those types of evaluations in order to determine whether or not a person is struggling with that sort of a, a disability. Uh, the school psychologist also does what you would consider more traditional counseling, so individual counseling, small groups, as well as a lot of consultation. So if a student or a class or even a small group of students is having a hard time in a teacher's class, then a teacher or group of teachers may meet with the school psychologist in order to figure out what types of strategies they might want to try, what interventions might be helpful given what's going on in that situation. Was, was a school psychologist something that was always in school systems? I'm just thinking, like, I don't recall a psychologist available in any school I've ever attended. Yes, so school psychologists have always been around, but their role has changed. I think that over the past, let's say, 20 or so years, uh, the field of school psychology has started to remarket itself and rebrand itself as more than just the testers. And that's part of the reason why in the past you probably never hear of them. Actually, when I was in school, I did not know that school psychologists exist, but that's because I was not diagnosed with any type of disability. I didn't have any significant mental health issues going on um, or really any need to speak uh, to someone who could help me figure those things out. Um, that's why I never knew that they existed, but they've always existed. They're actually written into um, educational law. So as a part of uh, IDEA, and I won't get too into that, but basically uh, there are certain federal regulations that require a psychologist to uh, be able to interpret assessments, determine whether or not a student would qualify for special education services. And for that reason, school districts have to have school psychologists. And that's been around since the federal laws surrounding uh, the need for schools to actually work with students with disabilities have been in place. So school psychologists have always been here. Something that I always tell students is, you typically don't know me until you need to. And then once you do, then you're probably gonna love me because I'm, I'm pretty cool. At least I'd like to believe that. What does someone who's mentally healthy look like? What does that look like? Ooh. That is a tough question because I don't think that there's one answer for that. Um, when I think of a mentally healthy person, I think of holistic wellness. So I think of uh, having coping skills in order to deal with feelings that you might have that might make you upset, that might make you sad, that might make you worried, stressed, frustrated, things of that sort. But I also think that being mentally healthy also involves other things. So 
Are you spiritually fulfilled? Whatever that looks like. It doesn't necessarily mean that you subscribe to a particular religion, but are you feeling connected to something? Um, and are you feeling some sense of fulfillment in that? I also think that mentally healthiness, I guess, I know that's not a word, um, also has to do with being satisfied in what you might be doing as a career. Are you feeling any sense of fulfillment in that? Um, I think that the relationships that you have, whether or not those types of interactions you're having with people are adding value as opposed to draining, I think all of that goes into to mental health. So it's not, it's not just one thing, but at the same time, I think that every person is different in terms of what they need to feel fulfilled. Not everyone needs uh, tons of friends in their life in order to feel like they have healthy relationships that are helping them grow and thrive and feel, uh, feel supported. Not everyone needs to go to church every Sunday in order to feel spiritually fulfilled. Not everyone necessarily needs to see a therapist every single week in order to process the different th emotions that they might be grappling with that may be making it hard for them to reach their goals or be a better, be a better husband or be a better partner or be a better uh, parent or friend. Uh, but I think part of that journey to uh, developing uh, holistic wellness is figuring out what you need, figuring out how much of each thing you need, and then going out of your way to try to achieve those things. When I think of health, I think of like physical health, like usually surrounding diet and exercise. Mm -hmm. And with that, is essentially a regiment to maintaining your physical health. Is there any sort of regiment for maintaining mental health? I, I think you kind of mentioned aspects of it, but is there some like uniformity around it? I really don't think there is. I don't think that, I, th I think because we're all different, we all have different histories, we all have different traumas that we've experienced, we all have different types of relationships that we feel like uh, we need to have in order to feel like we're we're living and not just existing. Uh, I think it would be hard to say that you need to make sure that you meditate every day. You need to make sure you work out three times a week. You need to make sure that uh, you're being promoted every so number of years. I think it would be very difficult to to say that because I really do think that it's very much individualized regarding what it takes to be well, um, similar to what it takes to be happy. I think happiness is relative and what it takes for someone to be happy can be different depending on the person that you talk to. And so I think it's hard to say. I mean, I know that when you look at research literature that talks about things that can help support mental health, there are definitely certain things like exercise, having uh, what I always like to call a team, having your team of people that you can talk to when things are not going well, uh, as well as a team of people who, that, who can acknowledge and reinforce some of those positive things that you are doing, um, because you don't want to just talk about things when things are going poorly. You want people to kind of 
let you know that you're doing a good job and, and provide some kind of praise because otherwise you might not hear it from anybody else. I think those things are really important. Um, and having outlets for different types of feelings that you might have. Uh, if you write, if you draw, if you dance, if you act, if you just chill, talk it out with a friend, whatever it is, like having different types of outlets, those types of things can be helpful as well. Um, so yes, there's, there's evidence that suggests things like that, even when it comes to like a lot of things related to like the mindfulness movement, which is big when we talk about things related to meditation and um, acceptance and commitment therapies and all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of evidence that suggests that uh, doing meditation every day for a certain amount of time can impact one's mental health. So there's research out there that suggests that you could benefit from certain things. But even when you look at research, research is not a guarantee that it's going to work for you or that it's going to have an impact, uh, which is why it's so hard. And I think part of mental health and wellness and whatnot is really trying to do an assessment of you and figuring out what you have, what you want, what you're lacking, and how you bridge those gaps. But until someone starts doing that work, however it is they go about starting to do that work, you're not going to be holistically fulfilled because you haven't done that work to unpack what it means to you to be holistically um, healthy. With children, so they don't know what they're getting into and they don't know what it could be right like as an adult you've had a lifetime of experience and at the very least you're familiar with terminology right like you're familiar with adhd just just simply put um you might not understand what it is but you've heard the words before my thought is if you say that to an adult like hey you may be manic or something like that they're at least familiar enough to say that's something I've heard before. I didn't expect that to be me, but they can process that in a way where they can, I guess, step out from the diagnosis and just kind of say, all right, well, maybe I am. Is it easy to get a kid to recognize that this is something that really is impacting them? Is it easy? I would say no. Uh, for a number of reasons. Um, something that I've noticed um, over the years of working with high school students is that oftentimes, even though they may have been diagnosed very early, no one's told them that they have a certain type of disability. And that's been true across a number of disabilities. Um, I know high school students with autism whose parents have never told them. And they're in 11th and 12th grade. And there are lots of reasons as to why uh, families have chosen not to have that discussion. Um, but the same can be said for kids with a learning disability or ADHD. Um, the tendency, at least where I work, um, is that many of the students don't really know. They may have been told about some characteristics that they have that are related to um, the the disability that they that they have, but 
many times when I am doing reevaluations, because uh, as a part of the process, if someone qualifies for special education services, every three years you're supposed to update what you know about the kid in order to determine whether or not they continue to qualify for services. So oftentimes when I am doing reevaluation, I will ask them, like, hey, has anybody ever said that you were diagnosed with anything? Anybody ever said you, you got something going on? Usually it's, nope. So they know that they have... They know they have this thing called an individualized education plan. They don't know why. And, and for me, I find that to be very unfortunate because I think that, I mean, to go with the cliche, like knowledge is power. I think it's empowering to know this is what I've got going on. This is how I am wired. And it just is. It's not a bad thing. It's not a good thing. It's just what it is. And because of that, this is what I need to help me be successful. And once you know that, then you can advocate. You can make sure, hey teacher, I need extra time on this test. Because the way I process information, it, it just takes me a little bit longer. Not that I can't do it, but I already know I'm gonna need more time on this quiz. And to be honest with you, I'm actually, it's, it's written. It's, it's written in this federal document that I am allowed to have it. Or hey, can, I gotta raise my hand a lot more often to ask questions in order to get some clarity. If I know that there's a reason why I need to do that, then I don't need to feel bad about that. I just need to embrace who I am. But I think that because students don't often know that that's what's going on, like your brain is wired a particular way and you have these needs because of it, um, they don't know how to advocate. and it does make it it makes it difficult for them as you know people who are growing into adulthood to just know what it means to be comfortable in their own skin and own what it is they have and own what their what their areas of growth might be and just kind of kind of embrace it as a human being like you're receiving a lot of information and that information isn't always good news so how does that affect you hmm. i think that initially it impacted me significantly like i would find myself taking it home and thinking about things that were going on with some of my students at night and not being able to shake certain things um i remember particularly um there are a few moments in graduate school and my training and even on my postdoc where there, there were certain students and certain families that I find myself just thinking about a lot because their situation, like it just didn't seem like anything was going to be changing or thinking about some of the things that um, they may have experienced and in some particular cases where they may have done something because they were um, the offender in, in certain situations. Um, I recognize that this is something that you have to do when you do this kind of work over time. But I do think that there is a degree to which I've become somewhat, somewhat callous uh, when it comes to uh, dealing with certain situations. Um, for example, I happen to work in a school that has a lot of students with very significant trauma histories and very significant uh, mental health concerns. Um, so I do a lot of suicide uh, risk assessments. I do a lot of threat assessments where students are threatening to harm other people. I've had to hospitalize a number of students. Um, 
who have been hospitalized for extended periods of time. Um, I've had to recommend that students leave our school and go to um, schools that are much more restrictive, that are very much specialized uh, in working with students with very significant mental health issues like schizophrenia and things of that sort. But I think in this profession, you have to figure out how to leave it at work um, because otherwise you're just going to, you're going to burn yourself out um, because uh, many of this, not some of the students that I work with, they're dealing with a lot and they, they have family dynamics that are not ideal. And there have been many instances where I may recommend something and it doesn't happen. I recommend it again. It doesn't happen. I recommend something else. It doesn't happen. It's like their, their lives are just not changing. But I can't change that. Uh, all I can do is, is my peace. And sometimes my peace is being a person that this person, that this kid can talk to when something is going on at home that's rough. Um, or when they're having thoughts about hurting themselves, just being that, that space for them to kind of unload and, and hearing some of the stuff that they talk about, just some of the stories that, uh, that my students have shared with me, recognizing that I don't have power over certain situations has been rough, but I've had to accept that, that there are certain things that are in my sphere of of, there are certain things that I can control. There are certain things that I can influence. And then there are certain things that I can't do anything about. And I've had to learn to accept that. Um, and, and that initially was rough. Uh, but I've acquired certain types of strategies uh, to help me. Uh, for example, when I have a particularly rough day, I tell myself that... I've got my drive, my drive from work to where I park my car. And once I park my car, that's it. Now, if I'm talking to a colleague on the phone about it while I'm in the car, once I get, once I get to park my car, I have to go now. Like, I, I, can't, I can't physically take it home either. And for me, it's a reminder that, no, we have to... Like have life. We have to have other things that we're doing and thinking and feeling uh, about that aren't related to all of the traumas that your kids are experiencing. Because if I'm, I think it it would make me a poor clinician if I also allowed all of this stuff to just be present in me all of the time because I'd be burnt out, I'd be sad, I'd be tired, I'd be frustrated. And that's not what my kids need. They need someone to, to be present and to be supportive, even if it's being supportive in that moment. Because I can't always tell them that things are going to change today. But I can listen to you. And I can, I can empathize with you. And I can help you problem solve how you're going to get through this day or how you're going to get through this week. But I have, I have to acquire certain strategies for my own self-care in order to continue to be um, a support system for, for the students that I work with.
So does the PhD know it when she ain't right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's funny because like there's certain things that I do recognize in me. Uh, there's certain things that I do a lot more of. Like I sleep a lot more when I'm starting to get burnt out. I'm my frustration tolerance is lower. Um I'm more prone to crying in my personal life when um, when I'm at a certain level of stress. Because um, in my real, in my personal, in my real life, I don't do that much of that. Um, so there are certain things I recognize, um, and I also recognize that there are certain things that I have to go out of my way to do in order to maintain my self care. But I think that that took time because there was a there was a period of time, and sometimes it comes back where I get into these modes where I feel like I can do everything where I want to I want to help everybody I want to be everybody's support system and I realize that you can't do that <laughs> or at least I can't do that other people might be able to but I, I certainly can't um, it just gets draining to a point where I can my body starts to tell me that you can't continue to do this and if I don't recognize it and put a stop to certain types of things, then I know that my physical health is going to decline, my mental health will decline as well, and uh, it's no good for for anyone. Um, so, so I, I definitely recognize uh, that. I okay. I think of two things. Okay. So one is uh, learning to recognize the value of positive affirmations. Um, I truly believe that um, saying one positive thing, even if you come up with one positive affirmation that you want to say to yourself or have written somewhere that you look at every day, um, can be impactful. Um, even like even when you're sad and you don't buy it, I think seeing it, saying it on a regular basis, uh, does contribute to you buying into it. Similar to finding a reason to smile every day. Like I, I think that like little things like that. Like. And you do those types of things enough, you start to embody the thing that you're saying. You, if you're, you're just finding a reason to smile every day, you start to have things to smile about, <laughs> as opposed to just forcing it. So, like small things like that, um, to kind of get your spirits up, uh, is important. I also think that um, I'm a fan of journaling. Uh, I think that I think it's important for all of us to start to understand the narratives that we have in our heads that frame what we think, what we feel, and what we do. Um, because we all have one. We all have a narrative. It usually comes down to some kind of core belief that we have about ourselves. Um, not everybody is... I mean, I clearly... I, as a, Well, not necessarily clearly, but... As a clinician, I, I value the therapeutic space, and I think the therapeutic spaces can be helpful in doing that. But I also think that 
just doing just journaling stream of consciousness like whatever it is you're thinking whatever it is you're feeling and doing that and then looking that kind of stuff over um, can be one way to start to identify some of the things that you some of the self-talk that we have um, because I do think that some of that negative self-talk that we have is driven by a, a core belief or or a narrative that we have that can be holding us back. And I think when when one recognizes what that what that narrative is, then you can start to work on ways to push back against it. Because I think that if you don't, you kind of end up doing the same stuff over and over again. And you end up stagnant and unhappy and not understanding why. Part of that is because you've got a narrative that's telling you something that's keeping you stuck. That wasn't positive, though. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I'm a negative Nancy. I guess, okay, um, a positive one. Um, you gave so me one. I asked for one. I did, that was just one. I guess another positive thing. I guess something that I've been really thinking about over the past uh, maybe four or five months is figuring out how to live and not just exist. Um, I think that you know it's easy to get stuck in that day to day and and not really feel like you're truly fulfilled in those varied aspects of life that I was talking about earlier. So I think, I guess to end on a positive note, try to figure out what is it that you can do to, to truly live every day, like taking a risk, doing something that's maybe outside of the box, out taking out of your comfort zone, doing something that makes you smile, doing something that makes you laugh, uh, because that's why we're here. There's no point in just going to work, going home, that's it. Try to live. Take a chance. By chance, podcast. (laughs) I mean, how rich was that? Take a chance, people. You heard the PhD. I'd like to thank Dr. D for taking some time out to talk to us all. And I'd also like to thank each and every one of you for listening to this show. In closing, I'd like to leave you with the following. In life, the only safe thing you can do is take a chance. See you all next time.